Amen. Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 14, continuing our series going through the book of Mark, starting in verse uh, 27 and going through 52 in Mark chapter 14. It should be on the screen behind me, but Mark 14, starting in verse 27 and continuing on through 52. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he called to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Everyone fails, but sometimes failures sneak up on us. They surprise us. We don't always fail the way we think we will. In Super Bowl 49, which was back in 2015, there were 26 seconds left. The New England Patriots were up by four points. The Seattle Seahawks had the ball only one yard away from the end zone, but they had to get a touchdown because a three-point field goal wouldn't be enough. They had to score. It was second down. They had one timeout left. So they could be guaranteed to run at least two more plays. And then, from the one-yard line, Russell Wilson takes the snap, drops back to pass, and throws an interception at the goal line. That's basically it. The game's over. They lost. And losing Super Bowls, that happens. They play every year. Somebody loses every year. It's not surprising. Being stopped from scoring the touchdown in that scenario, it's rare with only one yard to go, but it happens. Sometimes teams do get stopped there. But the way that this team lost 
was utterly shocking. They had a running back in the backfield, Marshawn Lynch, who had already run for 102 yards that day. He was averaging 4.2 yards per carry every time he touched the ball. He had 24 carries that day, and he had gotten at least one yard, all they needed, 22 of those 24 times. In the entire history of football, if you just were to close your eyes and pick out a running play, the average is to get four yards every time you run the ball. They had time. They had opportunities. They had a timeout. Not only that, the Patriots' defense was fifth worst in the league at stopping the run. Marshawn Lynch, the running back, was known for being hard to tackle. He was a huge man who could get up to really fast speed with a lot of force really quickly. You weren't going to be able to stop him. But they didn't run the ball for one yard. They only had to go three feet, and they threw it. And somehow they threw it short of the goal line anyway, only those three feet. It was picked off by a guy named Malcolm Butler, who is an undrafted rookie. He wasn't even supposed to be in the league. He wasn't even supposed to be on the team. He had started one game for them all year. He was the fifth best player at his position on that team. He shouldn't have even been on the field. And he's the one that makes the interception. Losing, that happens. It's not that surprising. But to lose in this way, to fail in this way, that was pretty shocking. This play has been called and widely criticized the worst play ever in the history of the NFL. It's not just that they lost. We remember that play specifically because they lost in such a surprising way. In today's text, we can see the surprising failures of those who follow Jesus. This text is about failure over and over of everyone in the text but Jesus Christ. So from this text, we'll see four surprising ways that we often fail in the Christian life. First of all, the first surprising way we fail is by failing even when we're sure we won't fail. You see, our failure, our abandonment of Jesus, which we do so often, is absolutely inevitable. Verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. As we'll see throughout the text, we simply are not able to follow Jesus perfectly. We're not able to stick with him in every instance. We're not able to hold fast to Christ as we ought to. Jesus knew that about his followers even before they did. He tells them they're going to fall. When he gets taken, he says the sheep are going to be scattered. He's quoting a passage from Zechariah 13 where God in a day of judgment will come against his people and his prophets for their sins. That there will be one who is pierced and from that wound will flow a fountain of salvation to cleanse his people from their sins. This passage will repeatedly show people failing Jesus over and over and over again. But what we should notice here is that Jesus knew it would happen. He's not caught off guard by the failures of the disciples. It was expected that when the shepherd who is pierced for his sheep is struck, his sheep are going to scatter. But notice what he says on the other end of that prophecy in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's saying that there's something on the other side of his piercing, on the other side of their abandonment of him. Not only for him, that though he will be struck he will eventually go before them, but also for them, that though they are scattered, they will eventually follow him to Galilee. He's going to go before them. He'll be in their presence again, going before them in triumph and leading them in that same triumph. 
Today's sermon, hearing four ways that you surprisingly fail the Lord and God of the universe, that might not be fun to hear. I mean, who wants to be told of their upcoming failure and to be told, hey, you're going to fail and it can't be avoided? Who wants to be told that they are unable to be loyal in service to the God of the universe who saved them? But it's my hope today that you'll walk away with a healthy understanding of your own inadequacy, your own inability to follow Jesus perfectly. Not so that you'll throw up your hands and quit. Not so that you'll say, I can't do it, so it doesn't matter. But so that you'll have a right understanding of reality. She'll have a greater appreciation for the posture of Christ towards you that though you fail him, though you abandon him, though you flee from his presence, he is still raised up before you, leading you onward and back home. There is something for you on the other side of your failure of Christ. And you need to have both of those things in mind, both your failure and his continued presence in the midst of your failure, because we fail him so often, because we fail him repeatedly. Verse 29, Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You see, Peter didn't want to believe this reality about himself. He didn't want to think that he might not be able to follow through in following Jesus. But how did Jesus respond to that idea? He said, Peter, I love you, man. But not only are you going to abandon me someday, you're going to do it tonight. In just a few hours, you're going to deny me. And you're not just going to do this once, Peter. Oh, no, not once. Not twice, Peter. Not just those two times. Thrice, Peter. Three times. You're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster gets to two. That's how immediate the abandonment is. That's how repeated the abandonment is. Peter was so sure. He said, nope, not me. I won't fall away. They might do it, but not me. I won't abandon you. And we've already seen from the text that we read earlier that Peter does. They all flee. We'll see next week in the continuation of this text that Jesus nailed it. He was exactly right. Peter does deny him three times before the rooster crows twice. We are absolutely going to fail Jesus. We are going to abandon him and his goodness and eventually at some point run towards sin in our lives. Even if we're sure that we won't. Even if we think we're above it. Even if we think we're past it. Not just once will we do this. We will sin and fail repeatedly. Over and over and over again. But take comfort in this. Jesus knew. He knew that Peter was going to do it. He knows that you're going to do it. He's not shocked. He didn't die for all the sins except for that one. For all the sins up until the point where you abandon him. Even that is included. All of your sins were future sins when Jesus went to the cross. And he went anyway. Peter hadn't denied him yet, and he knew that he was going to, and he was headed to the cross anyway. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, and he didn't rebuke Peter. He didn't cast him out. He didn't question Peter's loyalty and faith, even though it probably should have been questioned, right? You're going to deny him three times in just a few hours? Just a rational person would look at that and say, hey, maybe you shouldn't trust this guy so much. Maybe you shouldn't be so compassionate to him. And we don't get it from the Mark account, but what Luke adds here is just too good. Listen to this from Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. 
This is in the same exchange in the, the, from the Gospel of Luke. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I don't want to go too deep into the Luke text here because we're in Mark, but there's just so much in that statement. What I'll highlight is this. Jesus knew Peter would deny him, but notice how emphatically he says that there. When you have turned again. Not you're going to deny me. Satan has demanded to have you then sift you as wheat and we'll see what happens. No. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The failure may be inevitable, but for the Christian, so is the turn. And when you've turned, not only will you be accepted, but you should be able to strengthen those around you in their failures. You're going to sin. Absolutely. There is no such thing as perfection in the Christian life for you. You don't get that until you get to heaven. At that point, you're free from your sin. You are going to fail. You are going to abandon your Lord when it gets tough. Not every time. Not in every circumstance. We have some capacity to follow through and be faithful. But some of the times we are going to fail. You're going to say that thing that you shouldn't. You're going to ignore the prodding of the Holy Spirit within you when you have the chance to share the gospel with someone. You're going to lose control of your eyes, even maybe just for a split second. It's going to happen. It's going to happen repeatedly. It's going to happen even if you're sure that it won't happen. But when it does... Remember the turn. Remember to repent. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. The second surprising way we fail is by failing, though we're trying not to fail. You see, it's not about effort. Jesus here, not Jesus, Peter was emphatic that he wouldn't fail. Verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Said Jesus, not only will I never abandon you, I'll stick with you even if it costs me my life. Everybody around is nodding. Yep, me too. You said it, Peter, but I was thinking it. And then in just a few hours, what happens? They're all getting away from Jesus as fast as they possibly can. They're nodding now and they're running later. They're emphatic. This isn't effort here. It's not that they didn't try hard enough here. We can't fault them for their effort. They're not trying to lie. They're not trying to abandon him. I think they mean it when they say this. None of them is sitting there nodding, thinking, yeah, okay, this is easy to nod, but when I get the chance, I'm bolting. They actually want to stick with him. They actually want to follow through, and yet they don't. You see, it doesn't matter how emphatically we might say it or believe it. We are still going to fail our Lord. It doesn't even matter if we've been set up for success Look at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. He takes these disciples who just promised they would stand by him until death away to a quiet place to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the twelve, off just a little bit farther. And then he goes by himself just a little bit farther, and he begins to pray. He's giving them the opportunity to be with him like they said that they would. 
They said, I'll never leave you. I'll never abandon you. So he said, okay, then come with me. Come, pray with me. Be around. I'm going off to pray. You guys can come with me to a certain extent. You'll be within earshot. I'll be praying out loud. You'll be able to hear what's happening here. My soul is sorrowful even to death. So how you show yourselves faithful to me now is to be with me in this hour, in this way, in this time. He's setting them up for success. He's giving them every opportunity to do what they said they were going to be able to do. He's giving them every opportunity to be faithful, and they completely botch it. They can't even do this. They can't even be with him in this one hour. They're failing, even though they're set up for success. And what he's doing here in these verses is something that we can, whenever we get into it, it can be a little bit confusing. But what he's doing is he's he's praying for them. He's praying that the will of the Father will be fulfilled through which they will be saved and their sins are atoned for. Verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. All things are possible for God. So if it were possible for their salvation to come through any other means than Jesus' death, then that other means is what would have happened. But there wasn't another means. There was no other possibility for the Father's plan to be fulfilled. So let the Father's will be done. Jesus isn't wavering as to his obedience here. This isn't Jesus' will versus the Father's will in a grudge match. The Father is God, the Son is God, so they share that one divine will of God. He's not trying to get out of it. He's not needing the Father to convince him that this is the only way. He's praying out loud within earshot of the disciples that what's about to happen is the only way possible for him to do what must be done. That he is able to recognize the suffering, the anxiety which his humanity is going to have to endure. And he is willingly, even in other texts we get joyfully, continuing on that the will of God, through which he will save his people from their sins, might be fulfilled. He's giving them and us an example of what it looks like to submit our human will to the will of God. They're set up for success. They have the God of the universe praying for them, and they still fail. They're willing, and they still fail. It's not about whether they're willing to or not willing to. Verse 37, And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, he comes back and he finds them asleep. He said, Peter, I thought you were going to make it until death. You couldn't make it until, I don't know, sleepy time? But what's his emphasis here? Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing. I know you guys are trying. But the flesh is weak. You're still human. Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified for the sins of the entire world. And even in that moment... He is praying for his people. He's desiring that his followers might not fall into temptation. He's not surprised by the weakness of their flesh. He knows that they're willing. He understands that they want to stick with him. It's not a question of desire. It's not about willingness. It's about ability. You see, they can't follow him perfectly and neither can we. It doesn't matter how much we may may want to. 
It doesn't matter how willing our spirit may be. We are weak people of weak flesh. And Jesus knows. He's not surprised by it. We may be surprised by how often we fail him. We may be surprised by how great our failures are. But he's just not. It's factored in. We fail even when we're willing to follow him. And he knows it's coming. We fail even though we have no excuse. Verse 39. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This plays itself out three times, with Jesus going off to pray, coming back, and finding them asleep. It's the same story every time. And by the end of verse 40, they don't know what to say anymore. They've got no words for what's happening. They've got no excuses. They fail him without excuse. And Christ continues on praying for them anyway. He goes back again anyway, praying that their faith may not fail. You see, when we sin and deny Christ, we simply don't have a good excuse. There is no good excuse. If he were to question us according to our sin, who could stand? We fail him. That's what we do. Even when we're actually trying not to. But the thing is, we're not the victims in this story. We're not just passive bystanders who have no agency, no responsibility for when we fail Jesus. We fail him even though we kiss his face. That's the third surprising way we fail him from this text. We fail him though we kiss his face. We might even seem like we're on his team when we fail him. It might seem like we're wearing the same jersey. Verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. You see how Mark paints Judas here? His introduction is astounding. And Judas came, one of the twelve. Judas came wearing the same jersey as Jesus. And came how? With a crowd. A mob armed with swords and clubs from who? The other team. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Judas was one of the twelve. He was on the team. So if Jesus were going to be arrested, if we were just to discount the fact that he had already predicted one of the twelve would betray him in uh, the text earlier in Mark, the last people you would think would betray him would be one of the twelve disciples. These guys are supposed to be on the same team. If Jesus is going to be arrested, do you think someone from the other team would be responsible? Sometimes the last people you would think would fail Jesus are the ones who do so. And we can't perfectly judge what's happening when we see a massive failure from someone that we really thought was a Christian, really thought was following Jesus. But one of the things it certainly can mean is that the person we thought was a Christian the person we thought was following Jesus actually just wasn't. They're failing him in this way because they don't actually love him. Because they aren't actually his. Because they're not actually on the team. That's what it was with Judas. You see, Judas may have been wearing the jersey. He may have been one of the twelve. But he wasn't actually on the team. And so he fell away. And what makes this so tragic 
is that he did this while he was showing signs of affection for Jesus. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. To call Jesus Rabbi, to kiss him, These were signs of affection, signs of loyalty, respect, and love. You didn't just call anyone rabbi. You called your guy rabbi. The one that you respect. The one you follow. And this kiss hello, it wasn't sexual in any way, but it it was still a sign of affection. Still a sign of intimacy. How tragic that the Son of Man was betrayed with a kiss. A sign of intimacy and love was used to identify the one who should be grabbed and killed. You see, sometimes when we fail Jesus, this is how we do it. Tragically, under the guise of loving him, we actually betray him. That's the case for any Christian who uses Christianity as a club, as a cover for doing whatever it was they sinfully wanted to do beforehand. Anyone who refuses to love their enemies or their neighbor based on some heightened sense of justice is betraying Jesus with a kiss. Someone who twists scripture to support their own sinful lifestyle is betraying him with a kiss. A pastor, a church leader who abuses the people under their care, they are betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. We may show signs of affection for Christ, but unless we're actually following him to the cross rather than leading him to it, All we're doing is betraying him, even though we call him rabbi, even though we kiss his face. But those who are actually on the team, they can still fail too. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. One of those who stood by, which we know from the other accounts to have been Peter, drew a sword and struck one of the servants of the high priest. You see, this failure, this sin against Jesus, this rebellion against the way of Jesus actually looks like support, doesn't it? How can anyone say that you aren't loyal to someone when you start chopping off appendages in their favor to save them? But Peter failed Jesus here because there's a difference between being willing to kill for someone and being willing to die for them. You see, if we're willing to kill for someone, it really seems like we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. It really seems like we're loving that person. We're even sincerely possibly trying to follow him. And yet, we still mess it up. We still fail him. You see, his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't get ushered in by swords and war. It's ushered in by submission and a cross. Sometimes we fail Jesus by being right in the wrong way. These are the people who believe the right things. They check the right boxes. Formally, we may even be on the same team. But because they go about everything they do with a sinful attitude, because they like the fight, because they would rather kill for God than be killed for him, they fail him. Even when it seems, feels, or looks like we're kissing his face, we so often still fail him. 
And that brings us to the final, the most embarrassing way we might fail our Lord, failing him though it leaves us naked. Here we arrive at the climactic failure of this week's passage, when they all actually finally run away. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. To this point, he's predicted they would fall away. They claimed they'd follow him to the death. He asked them to pray with him that they might fall, not fall into temptation. They slept instead. A crowd came and seized him, and when they figured out there wasn't going to be a fight, there was nothing for them to do, nothing they could win here. They ran. And boy, did they run. They've been walking around with Jesus for three years, like they were doing cardio and training, all for this one sprint that they'd be able to get away. They bolted. They were gone. They got away from Jesus as fast as they possibly could. And how sad that is. When we fail him, when we flee from him in our sin, we're fleeing the one that we claim to be loving. It's tragic. But what's crazy here is that from a human perspective, we're tempted to say this is a sad thing for Jesus in this moment. Jesus was abandoned. And I think it is objectively sad for him. But I think it's a lot sadder for the disciples. They ran away. And when they got away, what did they have with them? Nothing. They were able to keep their lives, but they weren't able to keep their love. They were able to keep going, but they weren't still following. For those brief moments, these short days between when he was taken and when he returned, they were left with only themselves to deal with. They were left with only themselves to serve. And that's the tragedy. When we fail Jesus, when we run from him into our sin, we are the ones who lose. When we could follow him, though it may cost us our lives, but we'd rather have whatever we ran toward when we fled from his presence, then we're the ones who have been left without our love. And what we're left with is only our shame. We're only left with our own nakedness. Verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. These two verses are up there for some of the strangest inclusions in all of Scripture. We're not told the young man's name. The early church tended to think this was probably Mark. That's how he knew to write it down. That's why nobody else wrote about it. It's how Mark knew that it happened. We're not told why he was there. We're not given any interpretation of it. No other gospel mentions this occurrence. So I don't think we should draw too much meaning from this. But narratively, it seems to me that Mark included it as an added illustration of what's happening here. There's a young, strong, virile man who didn't feel like he needed to wear a coat that night, even though it was likely a very cool either spring or late winter evening. He went out in his underwear. And when the fight broke out, even this young, strong, strapping man bailed. He bolted. He ran. He was left literally naked with nothing but his shame after running from the one who had come to save him. If you will, allow me to remind you of another instance in Scripture where someone is naked and ashamed before God in a garden. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, what was the first thing they recognized? Their shame. Their nakedness. They sinned, and now their shame was all they had left. 
rather than the communion with God that they enjoyed before that sin. And what did God do when he found them? He gave them the consequences of their sins. Yes, he cursed them. But then he did this, Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God killed an animal. You could even say that God sacrificed the animal so that through the death of that sacrifice, their shame might be covered. Their sin had left them naked. But the sacrifice of another in their place gave them dignity and comfort before God. They weren't left in their shame. They weren't left in their nakedness. We don't know the young man's identity. And he's certainly not the only one who failed in this text. Peter and the disciples failed even when they were sure that they wouldn't. They failed even though they were trying not to. Judas failed even though he kissed the face of Jesus. And when they fled, they were left with nothing but their shame. We as Christians simply cannot live the Christian life perfectly. We will fail, we will sin, and we will do so repeatedly. We may zealously desire not to sin. We might even be set up for success in that endeavor. We might be willing ourselves toward holiness, toward perfection, toward glory, left without excuse when the sins inevitably occur. We might be showing outward affection for Christ while inwardly wasting away, trying to serve him through other means than what he's asked. But we'll still sin. We'll still fail. We'll still be left without our love and with only our shame. But Christian, today hear this. On that day when you have nothing left, on that day when there's nothing left that you can point to to make yourself look holy, when you are at the absolute end of yourself, having completely messed up every aspect of your life, when you have done something worse than anyone thought you were capable of, when it feels like the mountain of your sin has simply grown too tall before you, and when all you have left is the shame you carry and the consequences of your actions, know that Jesus saw all these same things in his disciples, and he died for their sins anyway. Know that when Adam and Eve were left naked and ashamed in the garden, after fracturing the perfect peace of his good creation, God covered their shame anyway, through the sacrifice ultimately of Christ. That covering, that comfort, when you fail him, and you will, that's available now when we fail him. And it'll still be available on that day. That's the hope that we have in this text. We fail him in every way we can. And he never fails us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for being long-suffering, patient, and steadfast love. For loving a people like us. For bearing with a people like us. Thank you for seeing our failures and dying for us anyway. Thank you for knowing we would fail you and including us in your people anyway. Thank you for loving us despite our failures. Giving us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through which we can be sanctified. Through which we don't have to fail as much. We don't have to fail every second. Thank you for giving us a short hope and a steadfast promise that there will come a day when we no longer fail. When we no longer sin. When we're able to bask in your presence forever. 
God, let those days come quickly. Be with us when we fail. And let those failures be fewer and farther between with every passing day. But let us trust in the hope of your gospel when we fail. That though we fail, though we might fall away, we'll always turn, we'll always repent, we'll always be welcomed back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.